the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you might be in good health, even as it goes well with your soul. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified concerning the truth that is in you as you are indeed walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers though they are, who've testified of your love concerning the church, who you do well to send on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Because they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to help such workers as these so that we might be fellow workers of the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority, which if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that. He kicks those out of the church who would receive the brothers and does not receive them himself. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. He that does good is of God. He that does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony of everyone and of the truth itself. And we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. Beloved, I have many things to write to you, but I would not write with paper and ink. I hope to come soon so that we might talk face to face. Greetings to you. Peace be to you. Greet the friends by name. The friends send their greetings. Third John is a short letter. It's near the end of the New Testament. And we might think to ourselves, let's get through third John, skip over Jude and then really get to the meat of the book of Revelation. But we'd be doing ourselves a disservice and missing out on the riches that are contained in the book of third John. It's just 15 verses, but it packs a mighty punch. As in this book, John talks to us about various people, the role that they play, and helps us to see ourselves in the individuals that are present throughout the book. You know, you read some of John's writings, and people say when you study Greek, the first thing you should do is read John's writings because they're some of the easiest in vocabulary and construction. But though they're easy to read and comprehend, the truths that they teach are challenging to apply. One of John's favorite words in all of his writings, whether we're talking about the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or Revelation, is the word truth. The word truth appears in the New Testament 109 times, and 45 of those are mentioned in John's writings. But if you have your Bible open, just look at the book of 3rd John and see how often he mentions this. He mentions it in verse 1. He talks about the truth. He mentions it twice in verse 3, in verse 4, verse 8, and verse 12. You read the book of third John and you know that John's interested in truth. But this book is different from the others. Whereas in the other letters of John, John's talking about defending the truth and standing up for the truth and being sure you don't change the truth. And third John, he's still focused on truth. But this time he's focused on how the truth changes us as we interact with it. What happens to people who've been impacted by truth and what does it do to their personalities? As you and I read the Bible, we should keep in mind that we're reading about real people who had real problems and real successes. And they were human beings just like us. And they had personalities. Sometimes the Bible highlights something about somebody's personality to say to you and to me, practice that. Be like them. Do what they're doing. David, a man after God's own heart. Be like him. Moses, the meekest man in all of the earth. Be like him or Dorcas, a faithful servant. But then there are other individuals who we wouldn't want to be like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against the will of God. Or you think about an individual like maybe Demas or somebody along those lines. But there are individuals that we need to emulate. You might argue that the key verse in third John is verse 11, where John says, do not imitate that which is evil, but that which is good. Those that do good, they've seen God and those that haven't, they're not known by God. And we need to make sure that as we read third John and see the various personalities that he portrays, that we follow the right examples. Tonight, I want to talk to you about five. 
five individuals that John mentions in this book and what he says about their personalities. And as we do this, I want you to read about them, study with them alongside me tonight and then be thinking about the sixth individual, which is yourself. And where do we find ourselves in relation to what John says about these individuals and how they were shaped by the gospel message or shielded themselves from its impact? Now, before we do this, let me say a word about personalities. Right now in psychology, there's a lot of talk about personalities, personality tests and personality traits. I read one study which said that. Well, we don't have personality types. We've got personality traits, and there are really 16 of them. Time magazine put out an article which said, you know what? They did a study of a million and a half individuals and those one million and a half individuals took four different quizzes. And after they culminated all those results and put them all together, they said, no, they're actually four different personality types. And maybe you've read the book Back to You by Ian Cronin, and it's about the famous Enneagram study that he performed. And he says that there are nine, there have been 750,000 of those books sold. And they say, hey, when you read this, there are nine different personality types. And once you read this book, you'll find out what you are. And you hear people talking about it. Well, I'm a two and I'm a four. So which is it? Is it four, nine or 16? Well, I'm not a psychologist and I don't play one on TV, but I can tell you this. The Bible says some things about personalities and we should take heed. Let me say a few things before we get into third John tonight. Number one, we do have different personalities. We come from different backgrounds. We've had different experiences. We have different. We've been exposed to different things and we are different. But the Bible doesn't seem to put the emphasis on how different we are as much as it does on how much people that are made in the image of God are ultimately the same. And so while we are different and we do have different backgrounds and interests and likes and weaknesses, we're very much more alike than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. But here's number two. Your personality can be changed for good or bad. We're going to see that tonight. Beware of this idea that, well, I'm an introvert. This is how I am. And, well, I'm an extrovert. This is how I am. Your personality and mine, it can change. I realize that we're born into society. We we're born in a certain environment. And sometimes we get things genetically from our parents or otherwise. And some people fall into the trap of thinking, well, this is how I am. This is how I was born. But remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than sin and genetics. And we can change. People can change as hard as it may be, as difficult as it may be. We can. As Christians, we don't have God's permission to say this is just how I am. Take me or leave me. I don't plan to change if it is a change that we need to make. And so as we examine our personalities, remember that we can change. And here's the third and final thing before we get into the five personalities in third John, a personality type or a personality trait that somebody possesses isn't sinful just because it's different from yours. And we might think to ourselves, well, I'm quiet and reserved and that's how everybody else ought to be. And so those people that are kind of more outgoing and extroverted, you've got to be watching them. Or maybe we might think to ourselves in the reverse. But in the end, a personality type isn't sanctified in and of itself. We are different and we can glorify God with the way that he's made us. And so let's study together tonight. Number one, the first personality type is that of John, the affectionate and optimistic apostle. We meet John in the gospel accounts. And when we meet him in the gospels, he's obviously a young man. Mark three and verse 17 says he and his brother James are fiery servants of God and they're called sons of thunder. And Luke chapter nine and verse 54, they're so upset when Jesus approaches the village of Samaria that they say, call down fire and destroy these people that won't let us into their city. Later in Mark chapter nine and verse 38, he thinks anybody who's not in the immediate group of the 12 should be cast aside. And Jesus says, wait a minute, just because they're not in our immediate group doesn't mean that they're against us. But as you read the book of third John, what we find is that this once hardened and fiery individual 
has now been softened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice his terminology throughout this letter. John calls himself an elder in verse one. I don't think this means John was an elder in the official sense as an elder in the congregation serving in an eldership. But this deals with his age as he was an older man by this point. And he's affectionate. He writes to Gaius and he praises him in verse two. He talks about the things that he's heard about Gaius in verse three, about the faithful testimony that the brothers brought concerning Gaius. He's he has no greater joy in verse four when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. From verse five down through verse eight, he says, listen, I've heard about the great work you're doing, Gaius, and I'm excited about it and I'm thankful for what you're doing. He mentions diatrophies briefly in verse nine and verse 10, and then he's right back to good news in verse 12. He's optimistic. He's affectionate. He uses this word beloved. It's how he opens the book in verse one. He uses that word again in verse five. And every time he uses the word, he's using it to speak about Gaius and the great work he's doing. You see, John had been molded and shaped by Jesus and this son of thunder had come under the tutelage of the son of God and he had transformed himself into a son of thrilling joy and optimism. Think about his life. He had been in the immediate circle of the 12 with Jesus, but an even smaller circle than that, as he was a part of the intimate three. You remember? And he had seen his close friend Judas that he had worked with and lived with for three years turn away from the Lord. But that didn't sour him because he realized people make their own choices. After that, the Christian movement begins. And he's one of these individuals that you read about alongside Peter at the first half of the book of Acts. But shortly thereafter, his brother who he was ultimately intimately close with. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, he dies as Herod cuts his head off in an attempt to intimidate and persecute Christians. By this point in his life, when he writes 3 John, he's probably the last living apostle. He's seen all of his friends die for the faith. And still, you pick up 3 John, and there's the spirit of optimism. He doesn't think the sky's fallen and all hope is lost. He is not becoming bitter, a bitter old man, but a better old man as he realizes the best days are yet ahead. What he says about Gaius in verses three through eight and about Demetrius in verse 12, it's not a phony facade. He really means it. He has their best interests at heart. He's affectionate. He's optimistic and he's hopeful. You know, Murphy's law, whatever can go wrong, what will go wrong. And then there's a last little epithet at the end of that. Usually at the worst possible time, John believed in another law. Whatever can go right will go right. And I can't wait to see it happen. Notice what he says in verse two. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and you may be in good health, even as it goes well with your soul. John's optimistic. He says in verse five and verse six, I know that you're helping these brothers and you should do it. And it's a great thing. He adds his positive testimony to Demetrius in verse 12. Far from being soured and soiled by the world that he lived in, John believed for Christians that the best days were ahead. And so Hebrews 12 and verse 15, the writer says, beware lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. John was avoiding that by being optimistic and affectionate. He didn't have his head in the sand. He realized that there were problems. Notice verse nine and verse 10. But guess what? He was still optimistic about the good. I don't know about you, but in the past, as a preacher, when I've referenced third John or heard other people talk about the book of third John, the name that often leaps off the page is Diotrephes in verse nine. But appreciate that while John doesn't shy away from this issue, Diotrephes, the cancer in the church, he's a footnote for John and not the focal point. The fact that we in third John are more familiar with Diotrephes than the other individuals that John mentioned says more about our disposition than his. 
John is intoxicated with positivity about the church, about the things going on. He plans to deal with diatrophies when he sees him, but he won't let him rule the day. You want to have a good personality. Be the person that God wants you to be. Learn how to be affectionate and optimistic. Now, practically, how do we do this before we move on to point number two tonight? Here are a few things we can do to adopt the personality that was John's. Pray for other people and wish them well. That's what John does in verse two. And we should do the same. First Thessalonians 5:23. Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. I pray that your whole body, soul, spirit be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is the one who calls you, who also will do it. Pray for the well-being of other people. But not just that. Learn how to compliment other people without comparison. It's not you versus them. He's not reserved and worrying about his light being dim because he praises Gaius and Demetrius. He just lays it on and lays it on thick because he really does care about them. Can you compliment other people without saying, well, I've done that before. And, you know, you did great. But once upon a time I was doing that, I did that before, too. John's not worried about that. By the way, let me ask you something. How is John doing as he writes third John? The only thing I can see in my mind about John is that he's leaned over his parchment with his pen in hand, with a smile on his face. But in these 15 verses, John says nothing about how John's doing. John's worried about Gaius, Demetrius and the friends. You want to be like John. Focus on other people besides just yourself. Get your eyes up and above your issues and your problems and see who can I encourage? Who can I uplift? Who can I come alongside and help? That was John's spirit. That was his attitude. Remember that God's ultimately in control. There were problems in this church and John mentions those problems directly, but he realized that it's God's church and God's going to take care of it. And that kept him from becoming overly negative and pessimistic and developing a spirit of defeatism. He believed that victory was possible. The first personality we encounter in the book of third John is that which is affectionate and optimistic. Now, here's number two, that of the godly servant. The letter's written to Gaius. Now, the name Gaius appears several times throughout the New Testament. It's in Acts 19 and verse 29. It appears again in Acts 20 and verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14, and then at the end of the book of Romans in Romans 16, 23. Every time we read the name Gaius, it may be the guy in 3 John, but it might not be. One commentator said the name Gaius was so common in the first century world that it was used in court documents the same way we use the name John Doe or Jane Doe. So in the first century, it would be Gaius, though. I don't know how that sounds, but that's how it would have been. That's how common the name was. So to assume every time we hit on the name of Gaius that it is the Gaius of third John, we just really can't be sure. But here is what we do know with certainty, that though his name was common, the man Gaius that we read about in third John was anything but. He was a special servant. Would you notice the text again of third John and read all the things that John says that he's doing? Look at verse two. I pray that all may go well with you and you might be in good health. The old King James says that you may prosper and be in good health even as your soul is prospering. We've got options with verse two. Option number one is that Gaius is not in good health. If he's not in good health, that makes everything that John says that he's doing all the more remarkable, that he was doing these things while he was under physical duress. But maybe John saying, hey, I want you to remain in good health so that the good works that you're doing might continue on. Either way, he was handling business. And John says, I want your spirit right and your soul. But here's the second thing. His soul was prospering. John says, that you may be in good health, even as it goes well with your soul. You know, Gaius had his priorities in order. First Timothy four and verse eight, Paul says bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Having the promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. Gaius had his affairs in order, meaning Gaius realized the most important thing in the world is that I might prosper in my soul. And he labored toward that end. What did Gaius do? 
He helped missionaries. So far as we know from third John, Gaius never went on a mission trip himself, but he did send others. Notice verse five. John talks about this idea of him helping these other individuals in verse six. He says you should send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God because they've testified of your love concerning the church. He has supported these missionaries and John praises him for doing so. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 42, if you give even a cup of cold water to those that come by my name, you've done well. But Gaius had done far more than that. And what we should be asking ourselves is this. How long had he been an elder at the church in Ephesus? How long had he been their preacher? You see, when you read the book of third John, you learn none of those things about Gaius. The Bible doesn't say anything about those things. And in saying nothing about those things, it says so much. It says to us that the title we wear is not nearly as important as the towel we must wear as servants of God. What was Gaius's occupation in the church? What was his role? What was his title? A servant. And that was enough. Jesus says in Mark 10, 44 and 45, whosoever would be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Gaius did was focused on serving other individuals and he did it in a godly fashion and in a godly way. And John praised him for doing it. He could be counted on. He was dependable. He was faithful. He did what he did faithfully. How do we develop the godly servant spirit and personality of Gaius? Here are a few things we can do before we move on to the third person. If we're going to be like Gaius and be a godly servant, we need to make sure we prosper in our souls. Health professionals say 80 percent of Americans don't get enough exercise. They say we need to walk more and run more and eat healthier. I don't like the eat healthier part, but they said we need to. We need to exercise and take care of our physical bodies. The Bible says as much that we should sanctify our bodies. First Thessalonians 5:23. But we also need to make sure that we take care of our souls. Here's the question. Is your soul prospering? Is your soul getting the exercise that God would have it to get? Are you doing the things that help you to prosper in your soul? That's what God tells us about Gaius in third John. You remember Peter in second Peter one, five through 11. Beside this, give all diligence Add to your faith, virtue and to virtue, knowledge and to knowledge, temperance, to temperance, patience, to patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness. If these things are in you and abound, they make you you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your soul will prosper. You want to be like Gaius? exercise your soul that's what he did but he didn't just do that he walked in the truth and we've got to do the same thing that's verse 3 and verse 4 he was walking in the truth what does that mean it means doing what we know to be right you want the personality of a godly servant Gaius wasn't worried about celebrity status he was just worried about where can I serve and let me do that walk in the truth it's first John one and verse seven. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Do what you know to be right based on what you read in the New Testament. Never war against your own conscience by doing that, which is wrong. He was faithful. Notice verse five. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all of your service for the brothers. He was faithful. I don't know what your job is at Lehman Avenue. Maybe you signed up to be a greeter. Maybe you fix the Lord's Supper, you teach a Bible class. The point is, whatever you do, do it faithfully. It means to be dependable, to be somebody people can rely on. Hold your hand in third, John, and go to Colossians chapter four. Colossians chapter four has one of these lists where Paul is saluting other individuals, mentioning people. Neil mentioned Epaphras this morning, one of their faithful servants. But I want you to see what Paul says about an individual in Colossians four and verse 17 along the idea of you need to be faithful in whatever it is you do. 
in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul mentions this little known individual, Archippus. And he says, make sure that you tell Archippus that he's received a ministry from the Lord and he needs to fulfill it. You see that? Paul's saying, listen, you've got a ministry, Archippus, and make sure you've received it from God. But you didn't just receive it to remain stagnant. Underline this part. See that you fulfill it. You want to be a godly servant like Gaius? Whatever your ministry is, be reliable, be faithful, be dependable. And here's the last thing that we learned from Gaius, and that is whatever you can do, do what you can. Go back to third John. Aren't you glad that verse five is in the Bible? I love this verse. John says, beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in your efforts for these brothers, strangers though they are. Now, different translations render this differently. The King James and the New King James says something like, it's a faithful thing you do in whatever you do. The New American Standard says, and whatever you accomplish. Sometimes this verse is for these moments. When you look out at other people and you say, I don't know how she does all of that. I don't know how she juggles all of those things, wears all of those hats and still gets it all done. Or you look at him and you say, I don't know how he's able to fulfill all of those roles and do all of them well. Third John verse five is your verse. I don't know. Gaius couldn't do everything, but I love what John says about him. You are faithful in whatever you do. That's the only thing you're responsible for. What is it that you can do? Don't worry about the other person as admirable as that may be. Gaius couldn't do everything that John could do or Paul could do. But John says, now, Gaius, what you are doing, whatever it is, you're faithful in what you're doing. You know, sometimes people, they look at the lives other people are living and they say, I wish I could do that. Somebody, maybe they're a parent and they say, you know what? If I didn't have kids, I just can't wait until this. Whatever you do, having children and rearing them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a ministry. It's not being a faithful, godly parent plus more. That is a ministry. Whatever you do, do that faithfully. Sometimes somebody says, you know what, I'm older. I used to be able to do all these things. God is not expecting you to do everything you always could do. He's just expecting you to be the best version of yourself you can be right now. God knows your age. He knows you can't do what you used to do. What can you do right now? God wants the best version of you in every season of life. Whatever you can do, do that. Somebody says, well, I'm in school. Well, guess what? God knows you're in school. God knows that already. He's not asking you to do what somebody can do that's retired. He's saying, find your ministry and whatever you do in the spirit of Gaius, be sure that you do it faithfully. This optimism that the New Testament has about people fulfilling their ministries. Gaius is an example of a godly servant who went all the way in and serving the Lord. And he let nothing be a stumbling block in his way as he faithfully served. He had the personality of a godly spirit. And now number three. The third personality is Diotrephes. This kind of goes along with the lesson from Judas last Sunday morning. But if your name is only going to be in the New Testament one time, make sure that it's in there for something positive. Nobody seemed to have gotten that memo to Diotrephes, or at least they didn't get it there in time. This is the only time his name's mentioned in the New Testament, and everything that's said about Diotrephes is negative. Listen, his problem is in verse 9, and the fruit is in verse 10. His problem is, notice the text, he loves to put himself first. The King James says he loves to have the preeminence, and that's why he does what he does in verse 10. But you know what his problem is? His problem is he loves to put himself first in a religion where we're told Jesus has all the preeminence, Colossians 1.18. Now let's do simple math. I know a lot of people don't like math. This is simple math. Colossians 1.18. If Jesus has all preeminence, how much do you and I have? One minus one, right? That's simple math. None. Jesus has all of it. Diotrephes' problem is he wanted it to be about himself, and he was radical. 
Look at verse 10. John says he loves to put himself first and note the problems that are the result of his biggest issue. John says he talks wicked nonsense against us, speaking ill against the apostles. He doesn't welcome the brothers like Gaius did. He won't. If other people try to welcome the brothers, he puts them out of the church. He couldn't kick anybody out of God's family. But in the local congregation, Diotrephes, if you didn't do it his way, Diotrephes would just be rid of you. He couldn't tolerate it. It had to all be about him or nobody did anything. He was a cancerous personality in the kingdom of God. And John says, when I come, I'll talk to him face to face about it. David Zoll, in his book, Low Anthropology, says that in the end, sin in its practice, he says, can be likened unto our addiction to personal control. He says, if you think about sin, you just name the sin in the end. In practice, sin is the result of our addiction to personal control. When we say somebody's a control freak, what we mean is this person has a com- compulsive and obsessive addiction to always having things go their way. And when things don't go their way. What you see is a treacherous and reckless and worldly response and diatrophies is exhibit A. We've known people that have struggled with substance abuse and they may be addicted to alcohol or to drugs. And what they think that they have to have to live is ultimately the poison that's killing them. And so it is with every one of us with any sin. You name the sin at the root of it. It's our addiction to self-control. Why do people lie? Because they want to control the narrative. And when things aren't being and when they're not being viewed the way they want, they'll tell a mistruth because, hey, I've got to be in control. Why are people angry? Why do we get angry? Because we want to be in control. And when you cross us, when things don't go our way, we'll sin and do whatever we can to get back in control. What the Bible's saying is, listen, release control because you're not meant to be. Diotrephes is exhibit A of what happens to people who let sin get the dominion over them and who ultimately want to be in control of themselves outside of Jesus Christ. And John says, this is how he is. It's amazing that his behavior would be tolerated in the New Testament church. But can you imagine the justifications that were made for him? Hey, doesn't have any tact. Diotrephes isn't a kind man, but I tell you what, he knows the Bible. You know what I mean? Diotrephes is a bad guy. He's rude. Don't get him wrong. But hey, at least he's willing to speak up. I kind of like a person that takes charge. He's a rude guy. But at the end of the day, hey, we're all people. Folks are different. Diotrephes. I wouldn't put him in a personal Bible study per se, but he's kind of funny. And every now and again, he says something to somebody I don't like. And all of the justifications. And John says, this is terrible. It's terrible. John says, when I come, verse 10, I will bring up what he's doing because it's not in the spirit of Christ. And ultimately, it ruins the church. Now, here's the question. In a personality test, are you like Diotrephes? I know what we think. We think, well, there's no way I could be like Diotrephes. I mean, I would never do the kinds of things. I've never tried to kick anybody out of the church. But we might be more like them than we think. I brought a quiz tonight and let's take the Diotrephes quiz and let's see if we're like him. Question number one on the quiz. Do you love hearing your name called? Mark 12, 38, Jesus said about the Pharisees, they love to be called rabbi, rabbi. Do we love to hear our names called? Even if we sort of had this feigned humility about us, we have our head down a little bit. We pretend that we're humble, but we really like when people talk about us. Question number two, are you your favorite subject? Diotrephes was the kind of man who needed no introduction, but he definitely needed a conclusion. You know what I mean? Diotrephes was all about himself. It was all about Diotrephes. He was his favorite subject. When people talk to you, do they learn more about Jesus Christ or more about you? Are you always focused on you? Question number three. Do you have any unpublished or unstated opinions? Does everybody know everything that you think about everything? 
Romans 14, 22, Paul said there are some things that should be kept between a man and God. How do you talk about others? Especially people that you don't like or don't agree with. John says Diotrephes is getting up in the church and he's talking against us as the apostles. But notice the next one. Do you block other people from doing good? So maybe Diotrephes doesn't want to welcome the missionaries. But John says he goes beyond that. He puts people out of the church that would welcome missionaries. If I can't do it, then you can't do it. Do you think just because you've been a member at this congregation for a long time that the church belongs to you? Sometimes we do that. Listen, all of us should have a sense of ownership about the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ. If we're members here and we want to see her do good and glorify God. But this isn't your church or mine. What about this? Are you a congregation hopper? I know some people sometimes they'll say, you know, I've been to every church in this county and not one of them sound. You know, every time I go in there, I've got to straighten the folks out and then I've got to leave. Well, if every congregation in the whole area has a problem, maybe the problems came and left with you. Maybe it's not everybody else. But if I'm always hopping congregations, I can't stay still because I always get into it with somebody else. It just might be that I'm the problem. Do you despise God approved leadership? I'm not going to do what they tell me to do. I want to do things my own way. Well, that was diatrophies. Are you quick to quit? You know what? I've tried to do several things. They won't let me do what I want. and I'm out of here. That was the elder brother in Luke 15. Lo, these many years I've served you. I've never transgressed your commandment. You never gave me a goat that I might have a party with my friends. And since I'm not getting my way, I'm not being acknowledged. I'm just going to throw my hands back. I'm going to come. I'm sitting on that pew, but you're not going to get anything out of me. They won't do anything I want. I'm out of here. Are we the kind of people that would fail the Diotrephes quiz? Do we always have to have our hands in everything? Are we always in control and everything has to go our way? That was the spirit of Diotrephes. And it wasn't just bad for relationships. In the end, it was ruining the church where he served. It's interesting to appreciate what would have happened to Diotrephes when this letter finally arrived. Because the way letters are read in the first century church is John or Paul or somebody would write a letter and then it would be read before the congregation. And imagine the contrary expressions on the faces of a Gaius and a Diotrephes. One man serves blindly and just does God's work and never expects to hear his name called. And as soon as the letter opens up, he realizes that he's beloved and that his work is seen. And though he works behind the scenes in Jesus's eyes, everything he does is seen and it matters. And another man who just expects that his name would be called, it is called. And when it is, it's not at all what he would expect. It's a bad report. I like what John says in verse 10, because on occasion we tolerate far too many diatrophies in our world. John says, when I come, I will bring up what he's doing. It's not okay, And it's not just one of those things we're going to be hush hush about. And, well, you know, he's been like that for years. John says, I will bring up what he's doing because it isn't his church and he can't behave how he wants I love that John deals with this, but he doesn't dwell on this. John doesn't just say, well, Diotrephes is ruining the church and everything's going to be focused on him. But neither does he bury his head in the sand and pretend that it's not happening. This personality of Diotrephes ruins congregations, ruins the family of God. And we should examine ourselves to say, is this my personality? My relationships with other people, do they reflect this? Here's number four. There's the spirit of Demetrius, a solid reputation with God and man. Verse 12 says Demetrius has a good testimony with everybody. Some people believe that the letter was written to Gaius to tell him about Demetrius. And maybe Demetrius was the one that took the letter there. He was the one that picked up the letter and took it to Gaius. Whatever the case may be, we know he was a good and godly man. 
This idea of testimony, it's a prominent word in this epistle. It's mentioned in verse three. They testified about your truth in verse six. And now here in verse 12. And notice the threefold, the trifold testimony of Demetrius in verse 12. He's got a good testimony with everybody, with everyone. And then John says he has a good testimony of the truth itself. And last but not least, John says we add our apostolic testimony to it as well. We testify that the things that are said about Demetrius are right and good and true. This is a requirement for elders. They have to have a good report with those that are without so that they won't become a stumbling block and a snare. And that is Demetrius. Romans 12, 17, provide things honest in the sight of all men. That's the kind of person that he was and he is. He was a great example. If the key verse to the book of third John is in verse 11, where John says, don't imitate evil, imitate good. Verse 12 is the example. He's just talked about diatrophies. Remember in verse nine and verse 10. And now in verse 11, he says, make sure that you don't imitate evil, but imitate good. And then in verse 12, he says, here's an example of a good man that I want you to make sure that you imitate. What is our testimony like? The people that know us best, what would they say about us? Where we go to school and where we work. Church members that deal with us on a regular on a daily basis. Are people intimidated by us? or Are we welcoming and inviting? What about our enemies? That's when you really know a person is who they should be. Even Jesus's enemies, John 11 and verse 47 said they said about him, this man does miracles. Proverbs 16 and verse seven, Solomon says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. What's our testimony like? What do people say about us? What rings true about who we are? Demetrius was a good and godly man, and you would struggle to find anybody who had ever met him that would say anything negatively about him. He had a great reputation. I've got a preacher friend who likes to say, take care of your character and God will take care of your reputation. If you do what you can do and what you're supposed to do, God will take care of the rest. But we've got to make sure that we take care of our reputation, that we do the things that God would have us to do to live a godly life before the watching world. And that was Demetrius. It's long been noted that Kobe Bryant pretty much mimicked everything Michael Jordan did. He watched film. He studied tapes. And in his basketball career, it was his goal to play the game exactly like Michael Jordan played. He wanted to win championships. He wanted to dribble like Michael, shoot the fadeaway like Michael. But what a lot of people don't know and what's been brought to the surface in his recent passing is Kobe Bryant once said to himself, you know, I'm great on offense. I'm a prolific scorer. I've got no problem there. But on this other side, this defensive side, sometimes I struggle. And he did what he always did. He said, you know what? I'm going to go to Michael. But this time it was different. He didn't watch any film. He didn't even have a conversation with Jordan. What Kobe did on this occasion was he saw a picture of Michael Jordan in his defensive stance. And he said, look at how he's standing. He's standing upright. He's balanced. He's firm. I'm going to do that. And the rest is history. He took it from there. He just had a picture. He didn't have any moving film, any footage. He said, I'm going to mimic that defensive stance. And I play defense like that. What John does for Gaius and for us as we read third John centuries removed from when it was written is he says, look at Demetrius and you've got a picture. Live your life like that. Let that be your model, your pattern. Have a good report and a good testimony with everybody outside. This doesn't mean compromise. You don't have to campaign for it. They didn't have to lie about Demetrius. John says this is true. His works speak for themselves. Hebrews 11 and verse 4, Revelation 14 and verse 13. Their works do follow them. They didn't need anybody to testify about them. Demetrius's works testified about themselves. And here's the fifth and final personality in the book of third John. And it's the friends. As John ends this letter in verse 15, he says, peace be to you. 
The friends send greetings. And greet the friends by name. This is impressive that John ends with these friends. It may be too many people to name, and so John just summarizes everybody. And he says all of the friends send greetings. He may be trying to say to Gaius, there are more good guys than bad guys, and so be encouraged. But whoever these individuals were, John is saying, they send their greetings to you, and I want you to send your greetings back and make sure you welcome them and greet them by name. When we read greeting in the New Testament, it's not the first century version of howdy or what's up or how's it going. It means more than that. It's a hospitable way of saying, I welcome you. I wish you the best in your endeavors. I want you to remember me for good. And that's what the friends were saying toward Gaius. And Gaius was to say back to them. And then the text says, I want you to make sure you greet the friends by name. This last personality is the spirit of welcoming other individuals. They were on the same team. They enjoyed fellowship together. They were a part of the same group. And they matter to and with one another. At Lehman, we have a group of folks called the greeters, and I think it's a great idea that people should welcome individuals that come into our assembly. But let me just encourage you. If you're not a greeter with a capital G, still be a greeter. We still need to be the kind of people that are welcoming and inviting and that people feel at home when they come into our midst, that we want them here, that they're not in our way but that we ultimately want them to stay and be in our midst and be our friends and family in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it goes deeper than that for John. He says, greet the friends by name. Show of hands of somebody who could say, I could stand everybody up in this congregation and name all 300 plus members. Any takers? We should try. It's personal for John. He says, greet the friends, but greet them by name. Go to Romans 16. Hold your hand in third John and notice what Paul does in Romans 16. Now, Neil mentioned this this morning when he was talking about membership in Phoebe. Dale Carnegie says the sweetest sound in the world to any man or woman is the sound of their own name. It matters. It matters that we do our best to learn people's name, to look them in the eye, to greet them. And Paul does this in Romans 16. In the first century, if you were a slave and people thought you'd never be anything else, they ultimately would just name you for something or maybe not even give you a name, just name you in the order you were born. If you were a useful person, you might get the Greek name Onesimus. Or if you were born first, they'd name you first in Greek or second or third. The book of Romans is written by Paul, but it's penned by a, name, by a man named Tertius. And Paul dictates the letter to him. And then when he gets to verse 22, Paul has nothing else to say. And it's as if he says to Tertius in verse 22, you give them a greeting. Tertius, it just means third in Latin. He probably was a slave who didn't even have a name and they just named him third. And then the text says, Gaius and the whole house sends greetings, so does Erastus and then Cordus, who might have been his brother, because that name just means fourth in Latin, just third and fourth. They don't even have names. But Paul says now in Christ, send greetings. You do have a name. You are somebody. It does matter. The world just throws a label on you, a title. But in Christ, you're a new creation. Second Corinthians 517, send greetings to the brothers. And in third John, he says to John, if this is the same gay as how remarkable is this? Greet the friends by name. Doug Hegdahl is a Vietnam veteran. He's famous as a POW. He went and he was captured. And I only can say it the way the article said. This is a quote. He went and he played stupid. He pretended that he couldn't read, write or think. The captors thought, well, he's no threat. Just let him do what they want. And they finally released him while he was captured, though. He memorized 256 of his other captors names, the circumstances in which they were captured and all of their personal and important information to the tune of old MacDonald had a farm. 
He memorized it. And when he was released, he went home and told his superior officers about all of the things that were happening to them. He knew their names, birthdays, circumstances, everything. Memorizing people's names and the facts about them made him famous. But it was important. And as John rounds out the book of third John, he's talking about the kind of personality. On the one hand, there's Diotrephes who doesn't want anybody in his camp, anybody in his company that doesn't approve of everything he's doing. And then there are the friends who with open arms say, if you're in Jesus Christ, we welcome you. And if you're not, we welcome you in hopes of all that could be if you turn to him. Beloved, don't be imitators of evil, but instead imitate that which is good. You know, third John's a book about personalities. And the whole Bible, in the end, is about allowing God to shape and mold our personality. In Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, it says that the people at the Tower of Babel desired to make a tower and make a name for themselves. And on the very next page, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Everybody in the world has one of those two choices. Either we attempt to make a name for ourselves and make our names great. That's Diotrephes. That's the Tower of Babel. Or we as the seed of Abraham follow the lineage of Genesis 12 and verse 2 and we say, God, we're your servants. We just want to be godly servants, optimistic and affectionate and faithful in our testimony, welcoming all of those who you've welcomed. And you do the making of our name and make it be great. In the end, we're one of these personalities and God wants us to be those that are godly, faithful and reverent so that he can one day welcome us home. Maybe tonight you need to put on Christ in baptism Believing that Jesus is the son of God and turning from sin, you want to be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When you do that, the world may never know your name. You might just be tertius or quartus to the world. But there will be a heavenly welcoming, a heavenly greeting. And we'll do to the best of our ability to always greet you by name, to welcome you into the family of God. If you've done that before and you need to respond to the invitation tonight, we'd be happy to pray for you and pray with you. Whatever your need is tonight, come now as together we stand and as we sing.